Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're continuing our, continuing our study in Matthew this morning. Matthew chapter 12. If you are following along in your pew Bible, the one in front of you, it'll be page 817. I've been informed that the font in that Bible is very small. So we have a much larger font for you. This is size 80. That's size 8. So uh, this is here for you to follow along. We read verse by verse and teach verse by verse here. And so we are in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. This is the word of God. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we pray that as we look to your word, Jesus Christ would be revealed to us. That any notion of Jesus Christ that we have conjured up would be put away, corrected as we behold Christ in your word this morning. Let our worship be the one true and living God. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we look and see the continuing climax of this, this fight between the scribes and Pharisees and, and Jesus Christ, I think it's important to be reminded of who these scribes and Pharisees are. All right? It's been a while since we talked about this last. Some of you are, are new to our church since we explored this idea a little bit. It's important to remember that the, the scribes and Pharisees that we are seeing here aren't total bad guys, at least not from a, a cultural perspective. The Pharisees, and, and when he says scribes and Pharisees, this isn't two different 
classes. This is, this is pharisaical scribes. Okay, so people who study the law and they're Pharisees and then your general population of Pharisees. So, so to get a sense of how this works, think, think evangelical seminary professors and evangelicals in general. All right? Now, evangelicals and Pharisees are different. Okay? One group embraces Jesus Christ as Lord and the other does not. But aside from that difference, we as evangelicals have a lot in common with the Pharisees, and we need to remember that. We believe in the resurrection. So did they. We believe in obedience to God. At least we say we do. And so did they. We believe God's law is the only true moral standard. Well, so did they. Pharisees would be standing next to many of you lamenting the loss of prayer in schools. And they'd be, they'd be right there next to those of you who want to see the, the Ten Commandments posted at courthouses. Like evangelicals, the Pharisees would be against abortion. And they'd be against homosexual marriage. And they'd be against euthanasia and so on. So whenever you see Pharisees in the Bible... Don't think crazy strict Jews. Think conservative evangelicals. Not not in terms of their opposition to Jesus or their opinion of Jesus, but in terms of their role in the society that they're living in. These, These are the guys the religious culture at large believes are keeping Israel from going off the rails entirely. They're the ones writing books and articles about the moral decline of culture. They're the ones whose life verse is Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Every now and again, we need that reminder. Because when we read the Gospels, We have absolutely got to see that we have a lot more in common with the Pharisees than we like to think. Just like the Pharisees, we can be pros at mixing religiosity and tradition and moralism in just the right proportions to where we don't really need Jesus. Because we're good and decent people who not only have God in our lives, but we also have this sense of purpose and we have this sense of meaning and we have this this satisfaction. So, as we're reading this, as we're studying this text this morning, have the humility to identify with the Pharisees. Well, I've divided this text into roughly three sections that follow the outline of the passage. So so if you want the outline of the big idea, it would be this, verses 38 and 39, when Jesus isn't enough. And then verses 40, 41 and 42, even though he's greater than anything and everything else. And then verses 43 to 45, It's because your heart has been filled with another treasure. So when Jesus isn't enough, even though he's greater than anything and everything else, it's because your heart has been filled with another treasure. 
let's start with that first section, when Jesus isn't enough. And just a heads up, we're going to spend a lot of time here. So, so look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. As if they're looking for a sign. Now, don't forget the context of this. Just 16 verses ago, same conversation, same setting. Jesus has healed this demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. And the crowd saw it. And what did they say? Can this be the son of David? That healing was a sign. And most people saw it as a sign. Isaiah 35 taught us that when the Messiah comes, he will give sight to the blind and a voice to the mute. And Jesus came and he gave sight to a blind man and a voice to this same guy. This is a sign by definition. And it wasn't just this miracle that was a sign. We're in chapter 12 now. We've seen a lot of miracles. But before this miracle, he healed the man with a withered hand. Before that, Matthew tells us that he healed entire crowds of their diseases. Up to this point, he has shown hundreds of signs. All with these bright, neon, flashing lights and arrows saying, this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Don't miss this. He fulfills the prophets. He fulfills the law. They've had their signs. And the scribes and Pharisees, people who know the Old Testament. That's what a scribe is. He makes copies of the Old Testament. They know their Old Testament. And they should know what signs would prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet, they're not satisfied. They're not satisfied with what Jesus has done. Jesus isn't enough for them. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They want something more. Something more than what Jesus has revealed to them. Simply put, who Jesus really is wasn't enough for them. What's going on here? The, The way that God has revealed himself to his people is not the way that they wanted him. In their hearts, they had a different expectation of who God in Christ would be. And because of their own selfishness, their own expectations and emotions were held in higher regard than God's word. And God revealed in Christ right in front of them. So they couldn't respond in faith. So they asked for a sign. Listen, when we desire more than what God has given us in Christ, we are just like this. You can draw a direct line from the pharisaical way of thinking here to a craving for the miraculous, the lust for something more. We, we sometimes are, are dissatisfied with Christianity in the in-between times while we're waiting on Christ's return. The miracle of the new birth in Jesus Christ is not enough. The fellowship we have with one another in Christ, not enough. Being able to hear God speak through his word, not enough. Being invited into fellowship with God in prayer, not enough. We want more. 
We want to see more. We want to see healings. We want to hear prophecies. We want to know the date of Christ's return. We want to see God give us material blessings. Why? Because for some reason, what we have in Christ sometimes isn't enough. There's a massively popular book in America. 30 million copies have been sold. I'm not going to name it. The author at the beginning says, I knew that God communicated to me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. Now, our God is a personal God. God has intervened into history as a man. He died for his own. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He has poured out his spirit, truly God, his spirit, into the life of the believer. The very heart and mind of God has come to us so that that all who are born again by his spirit receive Christ by faith. The work of Christ is applied to them. We're brought into the presence of God. That's personal. Right now, you are in the presence of God. God is personal. He has spoken to us by his word. He's brought us into community with one another to hear his word, to study his word, to sing his word, to pray to him. Yes, God is a very, very personal God. So to then say, I need to hear from you in a different way. I need to hear from you in a different way than than the way that you speak is to say, God, I'm not satisfied with who you are and how you communicate and how you reveal yourself to me. I need something more. I need someone more than who you are. Because Jesus isn't enough. And Jesus responds to that way of thinking, doesn't he? Look at verse 39. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. They want the sign? This is their answer. Seeking for something more than what God has provided in Christ, Jesus says, is characteristic of an evil and adulterous generation. Now, the generation he's talking about in particular, I I did this, I don't mean you, (laughs) but... I just talk with my hands, okay? So the generation he's talking about in particular is the generation of Jews represented by the scribes and Pharisees here. They are God-fearing people. They are eager to see their nation restored. And yet their rejection of Jesus, their rightful king, has revealed their hearts. And we saw that last week, didn't we? Jesus says they are evil. We get that. They're sinners. We understand that. And that was revealed by their words. Do you remember that? Last week he said they are a brood of vipers. That's, that's another word for evil. Because of their words. And this week he narrows down that particular vein of evil. Do you see him name the sin that they're guilty of? Adultery. An evil and adulterous generation. What do you think he means by adulterous? There's no indication that these guys are living lives of infidelity. 
or that they're cheating on their wives or getting divorced and remarried multiple times. He's not accusing them of violating their marriage vows. He's not talking here about their sex lives. Oftentimes, in the Old Testament, the prophets would accuse Israel of spiritual adultery. Because they they would go after other gods. They would worship other gods. Idolatry, in other words. Jesus is accusing this generation of idolatry. Now, where is he getting that? Because when we look, there's zero historical evidence or textual evidence that the scribes and Pharisees were leading people to worship other gods. They're not setting up idols of silver and gold. They're not teaching people to adopt the Roman gods, the Greek gods. In fact, remember that the Pharisees are very pure in their own minds. They believe they are the ones that are purifying their nation of other gods. In fact, one of the things the Pharisees don't like about Jesus is that he's claiming divinity. That's eventually what will lead to his crucifixion. These guys are so zealous for the one true God that they can't tolerate this man that they believe could be a false teacher, a man who claims that God's nature is something other than what they imagine. They are not at all what you think of when you think of idolaters. Not by any stretch. And yet Jesus calls them adulterous. Because in some way or another, they have forsaken their covenant with the Lord. That's what adultery is, a forsaking of the marriage covenant. They've forsaken their covenant with the Lord. What happened? Well, it's evident from, from this conflict that's arising. They have replaced the one true God with who they wanted to be God. They, they had this idea of who God was. And when God in Christ showed up on the scene, they didn't recognize him. Because it didn't line up with the God of their imagination. And so the result is that every time they worship, their worship is wrongly directed. Their sacrifices, their fasting, their prayers, their tithing, it's all directed at something else. Not the true and living God. They had forsaken the one true God for what they wanted to be God. Jesus wasn't enough. Friends, this stands as a warning to us, doesn't it? There's this idea, and I think it's especially popular in our popular culture, that if you are genuinely and sincerely seeking God, that you'll land on the right God. So worship in our minds is not measured by what God thinks, but it's, but it's measured by our sincerity and our, our, our feelings. And this passage totally blows that out of the way, doesn't it? You can't think that way and read this passage. That the Pharisees were totally sincere. They were worshiping exactly what their hearts wanted to worship. Exactly. And yet Jesus says their worship is idolatry. Adultery, a betrayal. Not because of their sincerity, but because of what they were worshiping. And I have to tell you, this is probably one of the most frightening warnings in this chapter. 
And that's saying a lot. Chapter 12 is hard. This is a hard chapter. Last week, we, we were told by Christ that we will be judged by our words. That's hard. That's scary. Uh, last, last year, in chapter 12, we saw this, this warning against blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Unforgivable sin. That's scary. But the idea that we could think that we're worshiping the Lord, but instead our lives are devoted to some false God who has filled the God void in our lives, that's terrifying. One of the most troubling things to me as a pastor is the thought that there could be people in my congregation that would fit into that category. Folks who don't believe that they should have to fear God, who don't take Him at His word, who when they read the Bible actually say, I don't believe in a God who would, and then you fill in the blank, my God is a God of love or whatever. Anyone who would dare hold their own opinions above God's word and try to explain away the word of God or just ignore it altogether and harden their hearts and harden their hearts harder and harder and harder. People who have become deafened by the sound of their own pride but but willfully gather with us week after week and sit under the preaching of the word. The thought that that could be occurring keeps me up at night. It terrifies me. And it doesn't just scare me as someone who loves you. It scares me because Hebrews 13 says, I will give an account for you. So if I don't warn you, if I don't present the word of God as the two-edged sword that cuts your flesh from your soul and points you to Christ, I'll be held accountable. That's why I plead with you. If you've you've ever walked out of here thinking, oh, that was intense. (laughs) It's because I believe that God is real, that his word is true, and that he gave us his own son. He sacrificed his own son so that we could know him. Because we were made to worship him. And to look at the sacrifice and say, my opinion of God is more important than how he has revealed himself. So my goal is is not to dump a a bunch of information out, so that you could write it down and feel like you accomplished something, or, or we accomplished something together. I spoke some information, you wrote down some notes. No, I'd honestly, this is... From my heart, I'd rather you not take notes, honestly. I'd rather you hear the word of God. Let the voice of God speak to you through scripture. I want you to behold Christ on Sunday mornings when you hear him speak through his word. I don't don't want to fix you. I don't want to try to fix you and tell you how to be a better you. The Holy Spirit will fix you. He's the only one who can. And he'll fix me. Together, we'll be fixed. As we behold Christ. So, so my, my job, my calling is I want you to see the true Christ as he has revealed himself in his word. And it's my prayer that we would respond to him in worship. 
What that means for us, though, is that we, as a whole, has to have the humility to approach God's word with this prayer. Lord, I want to know you for who you are, not for who I want you to be. I want to know you for who you are, not for who I want you to be. Reveal yourself in your word. Correct me where I believe wrongly. And that's a hard prayer, isn't it? And here's why that's hard. For me, for all of us, it's hard to ask God to correct our views of Him because then we're admitting, I could be wrong. I could be wrong about God. I could be wrong about God for 70 years. Nobody wants to admit that. But you will soon meet him. So that's hard, but friends, it's necessary. We are made to worship him as he has revealed himself in Christ. So let's not be the people who don't recognize Christ when he returns. And so we're then forced to bow down to him by some angel striking us in the back of the head. Let's be the people who hear his voice coming and recognize it immediately because we know the voice of our shepherd and we see him and we fall on our faces in praise of him willingly and with joy because our Savior has returned. Let's be those people. So section two, when Jesus isn't enough, even though He's greater than everything else. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign because Jesus isn't enough for them. And then the second part of verse 39 says, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, what is the sign of the prophet Jonah? Well, in one sense, and in a very direct reading here, the sign is Jonah himself. What sort of sign was he to the Ninevites? He was the one who came to them that was sent by God to preach God's word. And what did he preach? The shortest sermon in the history of sermons. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And that was all that was needed. With that eight-word sermon, or what, if you're the Hebrew, it's just a six-word sermon, the Spirit used those words to lead the people to repentance and belief. Amy read for us that passage from Jonah 3. The entire nation, every man, every woman, every child, the goats and the sheep and the many cattle were repenting because of that little sermon. The sign of Jonah then is this. It is the call for repentance. And that's exactly what this generation of Jews had. John the Baptist was preaching, repent for the kingdom is near. And right after John, Jesus was preaching the same thing. Repent for the kingdom is near. But but Jesus then teaches that he's like Jonah in more ways than just that preaching, just that preaching of repentance. Look at verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish... So will the Son of Man be. And that's his favorite self-reference. The Son of Man. So will the Son of Man be. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now we read this and we think, right, death and resurrection. I'm not sure his hearers would have immediately picked up on that. This is the first hint that Jesus is going to die and be resurrected. 
And it's an indication that when that happens, it will be further proof that Jesus is greater than Jonah and that the sign of Jonah has been revealed. Now, if you're stuck there, like millions of Americans and people all over the world, because you're confused by the three days and three nights thing, you're thinking, okay, if he's talking three 24-hour periods, then how come Jesus was only in the grave for like 40 hours, not 72, right? So when we hear Friday afternoon to Saturday afternoon, we, we think that's one 24-hour day. That's how we count, one day. Saturday afternoon to Sunday morning, maybe 16 hours, and then go, that's two days, 24 hours plus 16-ish hours, that's 40-ish hours, two days at best. Well, don't let that bother you. Three days and three nights is an idiom. It's how Jews would refer to any portion of three calendar days. Okay, so we count 24-hour periods because we're modern people who really like clocks. They count it more like this. Friday plus Saturday plus Sunday equals three days. That's how they count. The, the point is, though, this. He's saying here that his death and resurrection, when it comes... It's going to be the second part of the sign that shows that he's greater than Jonah. And, and the point of that comparison is what Jesus tells us in verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation. That, that means on judgment day, there's, there's one judgment day, they'll all rise up together. doesn't matter when you died. There's one judgment day, and on that day, the Ninevites will rise up from long, long ago, and they will condemn the people of Jesus' day, that generation of Jews that he's talking to. Why? Well, for they, the Ninevites, they, rep- they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And Jesus says, and I'm greater than Jonah. He's saying, if the Ninevites, your sworn enemies, they still don't like them. Gentiles, people who have no place in the covenant. If those foreigners, those violent, idolatrous foreigners repented from the stubborn and prideful prophet Jonah's message, how much more should you repent and believe as a result of my message? Do you see what he's doing? Lesser to the greater. See the argument? Now hold on to that and look at verse 42 because he's going he's to give you another example. The queen of the south. The south here is most likely the southern Arabia Peninsula. So think Yemen. Way down Gulf of Aden area, Yemen, maybe creeping into Ethiopia. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Now, we've already got the Ninevites judging these folks. Why do we also need the queen of the south? Look at the rest of verse 42. Jesus tells us why. For she came from the ends of the earth, small world, to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So so in 1 Kings 10, this is the reference, this queen, she she gets word of Solomon's wisdom. And so she travels what would be probably an 80-day journey. 8-0. If you're going 30 miles a day, 2,400 miles. She traveled 2,400 miles just to hear Solomon's wisdom. And the very wisdom of God has come to these people in the flesh. He's come to their town. 
and they can't hear it. They won't hear it. So on Judgment Day, the Queen of the South, who sacrificed much more for much less, will judge those who've given up nothing for much more. Why? Because something greater than Solomon is here. Now, now I want you to remember back at the beginning of chapter 12 in verse 6. Jesus said something greater than the temple is here. Same chapter, same uh, general speech, general sermon. He's already told us about something greater. And then time it was the temple, and he was teaching that the glory of God, the presence of God, was with him in a way greater than it ever had been and ever would be in the temple. And then in verse 41, he uses the exact same language. Only it's not the temple, it's Jonah. Something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was a prophet. One who spoke the very words of God. For Jesus to be greater than the one delivering God's message, he must be the message. He must be the word of God. And now in verse 42, same phrase. Something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was given the wisdom of God. Do you remember that prayer? He prayed for wisdom. God gave him wisdom. And Jesus saying, I'm greater than Solomon. I am the wisdom of God. Solomon was also the one who brought this extended time of peace to the kingdom of Israel. And prosperity. And Jesus is saying, I am greater because I am the peace of God. Solomon was also the one who brought this, this reign from his father David. He was the son of David, the rightful descendant whom God gave David's throne to. And Jesus is saying, I'm greater. I'm greater because I am the eternal son of David. I'm the son of God, the promised one, and I have brought the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, I'm all these things. I'm greater than the prophets. I'm greater than the kings. I'm greater than the priests. And I'm right here with you. And yet you're rejecting me because I'm not what you're looking for. And so you're going to be condemned. You'll be judged by the foreigners, by strangers to the promises. Non-Christian friends, I'm grateful you're here when you come. You're, you are welcome here. And, and I'm going to be honest, I don't know exactly what you're seeking. I don't know what you're looking for. Maybe you do. But I, I don't want to try to pretend to. And, and I know this sounds trite. I want you to know this morning, whatever it is you're looking for, Jesus is greater. So if you're, if you're looking for some supernatural, transcendent experience, satisfaction in Jesus Christ is so much greater. If you're looking for health and, and material abundance, contentment in Christ is far greater if you're looking for rewarding relationships, if you want to fix your marriage, if you want friends you can trust, listen, Jesus is greater even than those things. If Jesus is greater than the presence of God in the temple, if he's greater than the voice of God spoken through the prophets, if he's greater than the wisdom of God given to Solomon, if he's greater than world peace, if he's greater than any king that ever was, 
then I can guarantee you he is greater than whatever you're looking for. Those, those things that Jesus is saying he's greater than, those were tremendous blessings to God's people that, that no one else in the history of creation had, had the privilege to experience. And Jesus has revealed himself as greater than any of those blessings. Anything that Israel has ever had. And this same Jesus is available to you through faith. So receive him as he is. The one who died and was raised again to bring you into fellowship with the eternal God. Worship him. As he's revealed himself, worship him for the treasure that he is. If you refuse Christ, as he has revealed himself, then this warning that was given to the Pharisees is a warning to you this morning. You will be considered of that generation, and you will receive the same judgment. And if you're refusing like that generation, it's likely because your heart has become satisfied by some other treasure. And that gets us to our last section. When Jesus is not enough, even though he's greater than anything and everything else, it's because your heart is filled with some other treasure. Now to teach us this lesson, Jesus gives us this kind of strange, almost parable-like story. Starts in verse 43. An unclean spirit or demon is cast out of a person or leaves a person. We don't know exactly how it happens, but, but he leaves and he goes into the desert. And he goes back to the person to find the house, which is a metaphor for the heart, all cleaned up. And so the demon goes and gets all of its demon friends And so now there's eight demons living in the person as opposed to just the one at the beginning. And now that person is worse off than when he started. It's a weird story, right? And if I were starting a YouTube channel, we could have all sorts of weird cultish fun with this one. Any text like this without a context is a pretext for proof text. All sorts of weird trouble happens when you don't read the text in totality, especially stuff like this. So the point of this is not demons travel in packs of seven. And it's not there are demons in the desert. No, look at the last sentence of verse 45. See the word so? That's important. Underline that in your Bible. Don't be distracted with your imagination running. Underline the word so and see what Jesus has for us. That's important. So also it will be with this evil generation. Well, now we've got something to work with. Jesus has given us the context of the parable that he's given us. In some way or another, we're supposed to see that this evil generation Jesus is talking to has cleaned house and has booted out their demon. Now, when did that happen in Matthew? Because Matthew's telling us a complete story. These aren't just random verses, this is a story. A true story. When did that happen in Matthew? When did we see a mass cleansing 
take place for this generation? Well, to find this, you go back to Matthew chapter 3. Kind of set the stage for the rest of Jesus' ministry. And there in Matthew chapter 3, you'll find a man named John the Baptist. Matthew tells us that when John the Baptist came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, people from all over, from Jerusalem to Judea to the whole region of the Jordan, they all heard the call of John the Baptist to repent and prepare their hearts to receive the coming Messiah. So they did. They repented. They cleaned house. And they were awaiting the Messiah. And now Messiah is here, ready to fill that house and be worshipped. And they're rejecting him. So Jesus is saying to them, all that cleaning you did, all that repenting, all that baptizing, receiving baptism, your resolve to be a better Jew, well, now you're worse off than before because you're rejecting me. Listen, listen, a cleaned up life does not a saved man make. Repentance and belief go together. Repentance, just, just turning from sin and not to Christ, it leaves you searching in the dark with the door of your heart wide open. But, but true repentance is turning from treasuring something that is not Christ to treasuring Christ. Jesus must fill your heart or your heart will be filled by something else. And the reason why whatever takes that place, whatever replaces the emptiness is worse than before, think of it, think of it this way. Turn, turning from sin... And to something that isn't Christ, anybody can do that. Okay? Muslims can do that. They do it every day. Atheists can do that. Mormons do that. Buddhists do that. Anybody can do that. You don't need grace for that. You don't need a work of the Holy Spirit for that. But when you do that and then your life gets better, what does that lead you to? Pride? Confidence? Self-righteousness? Look what I did. Look at my testimony. I turned from my wicked ways and now I'm good. Now I'm a decent person. Now I'm a good father, a good mother. I'm holding down a job for the first time. I'm going to church. Look what I did. Look what I did. That's a man-centered, man-powered work. I did it. I accomplished something. I beat the needle. I beat the bottle. I beat my anger problem. My life is cleaned up. I turned from my ways. And Jesus is saying, when that happens... That person will be worse off than when he started if Christ doesn't become his greatest treasure. Because you don't need Jesus for that type of turnaround. Israel did not need the Holy Spirit to do what they did with John the Baptist. They turned from sin, but they didn't turn to Christ. 
And so their life became filled with worldly treasures, pride, self-confidence, self-righteousness, selfishness. To, to exchange one worldly treasure for another that's more socially acceptable is something you can do all by yourself. And it's going to be a whole lot harder once you've done that to convince you that you need Jesus. Because to truly repent and exchange your worldly treasure for Christ, for that you need something greater than your own will. You need something greater than your own ability. You need something greater than your own power. See, we can't do that. If we could, we would be right to boast about that. But that's what a Pharisee is made of. A disciple of Christ, someone whose greatest treasure is Christ, that's something only God can make. That's a new creation. That's why it's called a new creation. Lest any of us boast in our work, God has ordained that he would be the one who makes Christ our greatest treasure. I'm going to let the Apostle Paul close this out for us. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. Listen carefully to the words of Jesus Christ spoken through the Spirit, through the Apostle Paul. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You could say, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us our greatest treasure. Because of him. Jesus Christ is your greatest treasure. He becomes the strong man in your heart that keeps all other treasures out. He alone is worthy. All glory be to Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are abundantly thankful for the grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. We are so grateful that you have revealed yourself in Christ. 
and you continue to, through your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have beheld Christ this morning. As we move now to the, to the table to receive what Christ has given us, Lord, prepare our hearts for this. In Christ's name, amen. Our servers, come on down.